It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to the Times Business Podcast. That's where we're looking ahead to what will affect your investment decisions and spending habits over the coming days. I'm Robert Miller. That means asking whether you really do need to hold bank shares. Is it wise to diversify your portfolio? How are retailers coping with a spending slowdown? And finally, have the recent deals in the sports viewing world left fans feeling like this? Or like this? More about that later. I'm joined by Catherine Griffiths, The Times Banking Editor, Deirdre Hipwell, our Retail Editor, and Callum Jones, The Times Markets Reporter. Welcome to you all. Thanks for being here. Catherine, let's start with you. We've got a, a hefty earnings season, but banks in particular featuring up the front. They are probably the most widely held sector. But just before we look at the prospects for the forthcoming earnings seasons, I came across this wonderful clip uh, on YouTube. It's creating a letter from President Thomas Jefferson to his Treasury Secretary, Albert Gallatin. In 1802, I believe that banking institutions are more dangerous to our liberties than standing armies. If the American people ever allow private banks to control the issuance of their currency, first by inflation, then by deflation, the banks and corporations that will grow up around the banks will deprive the people of all property until their children wake up homeless on the continent their fathers conquered. The issuing power should be taken from the banks and restored to the people to whom it properly belongs. Thomas Jefferson, third president of the United States. Well, Catherine, they weren't much like 200 years ago, but fast forwarding, um, I suppose looking at it, they, this is in some way a chance for them to show that they are better citizens than they were. Do you think we're going to see that? Um, uh, yeah, I think it's kind of a path that they're on, but... Um, the genie was let out of the bottle with the financial crisis. And up until that point, um, banks just made lots of profits. Bankers made lots of money for themselves and no one really cared that much. In that famous phrase from Lord Peter Mandelson, people were largely um, intensely relaxed about people being filthy rich. And I think that banks since then, really, we've had a decade, have failed to get that genie back into the bottle. Um, they have certainly tried, but they're now on the phase of realising that they can't. Famously, of course, Bob Diamond, a few years ago, when he was chief executive of Barclays, told a Treasury Select Committee that the time to say sorry was over and everyone got very cross with him. And so I think 
the banking leaders largely now know not to say that kind of thing. And certainly there are lots of things they now don't do that they used to do, lots of sort of investment banking activity, which Lord Adair Turner once called uh, socially unuseful. But we still see lots of kind of bonuses being made. I mean, that in itself is maybe, you know, fair enough. We see products being sold. I think that's probably the most telling thing, actually, where while there still are better standards and there are lots of banks that will tell you these days they don't have sales bonuses related to targets, which mean hopefully mis-selling has kind of really um, fallen away. Nonetheless, there's just still a lot of, I think, there's a lot of bad practice that goes on within banks. I mean, there obviously are, they are there to make a profit. They are private companies largely, but they're looking for their main advantage still. They're looking for ways in which they can make a profit. And of course, almost always the other side of that is other people kind of losing on that bargain. I suppose one of the things that people most want to know about the dividend, and remember rightly, Royal Bank of Scotland still hasn't paid a dividend. Lloyd's is beginning to, but is nowhere near what it used to be. So are they actually useful to investors anymore? Or would you think, actually, if I was talking to somebody, I would recommend looking at another sector? I think they're pretty useful to investors. They're, they're large companies. They reflect the economy. If you're broadly positive on the economy, banks are very good stocks to hold. Lloyd's is ramping up its dividends pretty rapidly and RBS will start to pay a dividend quite soon. Um, you know, people have a range of views, including city analysts whose only job is to follow the minutiae of these banks as to whether some of these stocks are good value or not. I mean, for example, take Lloyd's. It's actually a very divisive stock. But what it essentially comes down to is whether you think the economy has good prospects or whether you think related to Brexit and other things, it doesn't. That largely dictates why you buy or sell Lloyds. It's just massively, massively linked to the UK economy. Like you say, they are they're very widely held stocks. And one bank, of course, which is set to become considerably more widely held over the coming years will be RBS as the government sells off its 70% stake. And so obviously its shares are in focus at the moment and, and their position, many people are paying quite close attention to it. They're the share price is now below £3. And I think the government paid, it was slightly more than £5 per share on average at the, at the time of the bailout, wasn't it? So it, it will be interesting to see what sort of price the government is able to sell shares at, at certain points over the coming years. And that's certainly something that's interesting that's happening in the sector at the moment. Yeah, I think the government has been preparing the ground for years on why it's going to sell out of RBS at a loss. It'll still lead to sort of people saying at the time, oh, this is really shocking. But there are several things to say about that. One is that RBS is a very different company from the company it used to be. It's sold a load of stuff. So in many ways, one can't expect its share price to be where it was. Also, the government bailed out RBS during the financial crisis to stop the UK essentially going to economic oblivion. I mean, whether one wants to kind of be able to also say, oh, we've got a profit on our shares, it's, it's a separate point. But I think, you know, the fun, there was a fundamental reason for doing that. RBS has said, and I think quite reasonably, actually, that it would be a lot better if it didn't have the government on its register. It would be a lot more straightforward to run that bank. Um, and, you know, it, it'll happen quite soon. There'll be a, there'll be a, a, a slug of shares sold probably in the spring. 
Okay, we'll watch out for that one. I mean, moving slightly to one side, we're also going to be hearing from Standard Life Aberdeen, which is obviously in the news, uh, along with Lloyd's. But looking at the wealth management or looking after our funds, our pension funds, ISAs, what is the story there? Just explain it to us. Um, Well, Standard Life and Aberdeen had to merge, felt they had to merge last year. And they'll tell you there are lots of exciting prospects for the enlarged business. But Aberdeen was losing lots and lots of money. People were redeeming their funds and Standard Life was struggling with costs and the kind of increasing competition from ultra, ultra, ultra low cost passive funds. So most people see it as a deeply defensive merger. And as such, you know, there is a view out there that they don't think much of it really. We wanted to ask you, people looking to diversify their portfolios, trying in different investment strategies, and as long as I've been around, and believe me, that's a very long time, um, there's the debate between the passive, the index tracking following funds, and the people who are hands on the active stock pickers. I mean, in their day, it was Anthony Bolton or Neil Woodford, and look what's happened to them. It doesn't go on forever. So as an observer of the scene would you say to people, bit of both, or would you just say, follow the index? I think I would probably say follow the index because I just think it's so incredibly difficult to navigate that world. And most people haven't got a hope of of kind of getting a sense of the best place to put their money. So just kind of following an index, cutting one's fees to as low as possible seems sensible. Actually, there's one thing someone said to me recently, and I thought it was a really interesting point, and it was in light of the kind of woes of Neil Woodford. And they said, if you take a star fund manager like that and you take them out of a big fund management house where they've been used to running a lot of money and they've done it very successfully and then they launch themselves into their own vehicle suddenly overnight they're under massive pressure to put to work a load of new money that they have or clients money that comes with them and that can kind of make it difficult for them to make the very best decisions about where to put that money you might have to sort of deploy however much over in the course of a few weeks and that can lead to bad decisions I don't know whether that's true or not but I thought it was a very interesting point that um, listeners might be interested in. Callum as a sector the fund managers I know it's all lumped under finance do you see a healthy future for the if you like the people like the Jupiters who were after all founded on the reputation of their then managers as very able stock pickers? Specifically on Standard Life Aberdeen there has been some uncertainty speaking to analysts because to investors about what this merger means. And the the announcement from Lloyd's this week will do nothing to heal some of the concerns there because there is some nervousness about this merger and the consequences for its business. And although, as Catherine said, that they set out their reasons very well last year, there are some people who are quite worried about what it might mean. So going for the lower cost lower-cost trackers, passive management at the end of the day. It would be a shame. I'm sure there will be active stock pickers, don't you? Yeah, I'm sure there will be active stock pickers. I suppose the trouble is with so many of the things things in the city uh, is that ordinary people find it very hard to access those good stock pickers in a kind of sensible, cost-effective way. It's this sense that some people with the knowledge on the inside kind of always do terribly well and, and everyone else doesn't. And I think it's just incredibly difficult to cut through that. I mean, certainly the... Financial Conduct Authority is shining a real light on asset management now and saying that, you know, fees are just far too high. And I mean, they really are. So it'll be interesting to see over the next few months what happens with that. Downward pressure. Well, no harm in that. 
Uh, let's move on to a bit of retail, Deirdre. We're going to be hearing from McCall's Retail, Burberry in the news again, and the big consumer group, Racket Benkies. In fact, talking about Racket Benkies, uh, here's a clip from their website as to how they see themselves. We are health. We are hygiene home. We are our being. Our purpose guides us. Our impact defines us. We are bringing solutions to a billion homes to help billions of lives. That takes determination, optimism, tenacity and ambition. We always do the right thing, even when it is hard. Very laudable there, but I mean, frankly, is that a waste of shareholder funds? Well, advertising. <laughs> well, I, I don't think if you're a consumer goods group, you can uh, ever not advertise because it's a fiercely competitive market and you have to kind of maintain and try and grow your market share. Although, funny you mention advertising because that's obviously quite a topical point at the moment in the consumer goods world, given you know that Unilever has kind of laid down the gauntlet to the big platforms saying that they need to clean up their act when it comes to advertising. But a, a wider point around the consumer goods sector and retail is that it's, I think, I think we're in for a really difficult 2018. If you look at January, January's got off to a really bad start. We've had a number of retailers go into administration. We've got a very big retailer in visible distress, Toys R Us. We had more than a few issuing profit warnings saying that the January sales weren't that good and that the British consumer is not shopping in the way that they have done in the past. And we've got retailers like New Look that are really struggling. H&M, you know, what the world's second largest fashion chain said this week that sales in their stores were going to fall this year. So I think we're in for a really tough space. And even, you know, not even fashion retailing, which has been difficult for quite some time. You've got in the casual dining sector, which only a few years ago everyone was raving about, saying, oh, this is, this is great and we're going to fill shopping centres with you know, food courts and entertainment spaces. And that sector's coming under pressure now. We've had Jamie Oliver having to do a CVA, Byron, the burger chain. So it all just kind of creates this view that we've got a very difficult market ahead of us because we've got uh, volatile consumer spending, we've got interest rate rises looming, and you've got retailers and restaurants and the rest all kind of fighting to gain a share of the British wallet. And I think it's going to be tough, really. Catherine, if I could... Just ask you, because a lot of the, the expansion plans and the, and the casual dining chains that Deirdre's talking about, and indeed the companies, actually involve, in many cases, it's the bank's money that yeah. they've lent out. And it's not a great sector for them. How do the banks view it, or is it actually small beer to them? I don't actually know how the banks particularly view that. I think that when we have their results in the next few days, they'll be pretty good. I think bad debts will be low. They probably won't warn on problems that they see in the economy. That said, actually, Nationwide recently did have a set of results that were really quite gloomy and did talk about consumers coming under real pressure. So, you know, perhaps six months down the line, we will start to see this feeding through into results. The problem that I think we have is I don't, th you know, everyone talks how Britons are living on credit and we have high credit card debt, then retailers will come out and say, no, but it's great. You know, we've got these great credit terms and it's, it's completely fine. And some retailers are doing quite well, you know, particularly if you look at, for example, a retailer like ShopDirect, you know, which is behind the Very and Littlewoods. I mean, huge amounts of their sales are done to people on credit. And you do wonder going into this year as interest rates rise, you know, are we heading in for quite a big storm there? And I think that is the real concern. And yet we get really conflicting data as to what is going on with that. So I think that's the big 
worry really is, you know, the, the amount of credit card debt we all seem to have at the moment. Is that something that impinges on traders every day, do you think, Callum, or are they probably as heavily indebted as the rest of us? Certainly retailers are in focus at the moment, so, uh, talking specifically about Burberry, which as you alluded to has announced this international push online uh, in recent days. It's kind of um, very much attempting to restore investor faith at the moment, and it's got a heck of a lot of work to do. It shares are down about a quarter since it announced this big up market drive last November. And really the market is quite quite worried about Burberry at the moment. And then they are equally worried about the sort of consumer giants as well that Deirdre was just talking to. So it's a very interesting time on the market for this sector. Can I ask it's a really dumb fashion question, probably, Deirdre, but we mentioned this far-fetched deal that Burberry's doing to sell all its goods online. I mean, it wasn't part of the whole ethos of Burberry, the fact that you could walk into a swanky store somewhere in from Beijing to London. It was part and parcel of the experience. I mean, just clicking online, I mean, Blumenack, I could go and buy my dog food online. I mean, it's about the same thing, isn't it? Or am I being very, very old-fashioned? I think luxury retailing has evolved, to use their own terminology. I think five, ten years ago, the idea of somebody spending £2,000 on a trench coat online was just unheard of because you couldn't guarantee the quality of the delivery and luxury fashion houses were very concerned about their image. But what's happened since then is you've had Net-A-Porter launch and Farfetch and, and these companies have not only created a platform to sell luxury fashion, but they're doing it in an incredibly sophisticated way. Like you, you get personalised shopping online. It can be delivered within an hour or two. Uh, Net-A-Porter, for example, even offers a service where you can have it delivered to your house and they will wait while you try it on and then you can send it back if you don't want it. So not necessarily saying any of us really need to have that kind of service, but the point is luxury retailing online is quite a big thing now. And for the big fashion houses, they can't ignore it. And also it just allows them access to markets where they may not have stores and bearing in mind how difficult it is to run profitable bricks and mortar stores that's probably no bad thing for the retailers still getting the message that the answer there is yes i am out of touch but never mind sit tight and we'll be back in a minute it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
Now, Callum, this is all for you. I know you're a massive sports fans and those cheering and booing sounds we heard at the start, they're relating to the football deals, the sporting deals that we've just seen. Can you explain the landscape to me? Well, so we heard from the the Premier League this week and the Premier League sells every three years its domestic television rights, of course, currently held by BT and Sky, who who broadcast the live matches and have done since, I think, uh, 2013 now. And the Premier League announced that BT and Sky, uh, it's effectively handed four of the seven packages to Sky and one to BT. Uh, And it was noted that whilst, of course, all seven packages went for about 5.1 billion three years ago, these five packages went for about 4.5 billion. So significantly, Significantly less, it suggests that the overall uh, collection of packages will go for less this time around. And so, which has sparked all kinds of talk about why Premier League rights have reached this ceiling on a domestic level. And I suppose the, the key answer that I got over recent days when ringing around people in the industry and asking was simply £5.1 billion, which is what they went for three years ago, is a heck of a lot of money, which isn't any news to anyone, really. No, and I think there's the argument, I mean, it's been made in the sports pages uh, by Henry Winter and others that it's a heck of a lot of money, but how far is it trickling down to the smaller leagues, the smaller clubs, and indeed to the grassroots of the game? Because aren't people actually fed up with seeing footballers earning £110,000, £115,000 a week and fleecing the fans because you get it's 60, 70 pounds for not even halfway decent ticket. It's interesting. This is a story which really, it's got, there are three different branches in terms of who this story affects. You've got the companies themselves. So you've got investors in BT and Sky who watch this very, very eagerly because they are spending. And Amazon too, isn't it? To some extent. Of course, of course. But for now, over recent years, you've seen investors in BT and Sky watch year after year, seeing how many hundreds of millions of pounds these companies were investing in such rights. You've then, of course, got, as you mentioned, the sport themselves and how the Premier League invests this money. And then, of course, you've got consumers themselves and then where they go to watch these matches. So all those three parties are very interested in the outcome of these auctions uh, every three years. And as I say, there are two packages and 40 matches left to sell. So Whilst so far BT and Sky are still on the pitch, there might still be an opportunity for a company like Amazon, uh, an insurgent, if you like, to to come and get involved for the very first time and potentially shake up the market with a smaller number of matches, admittedly. But from the perspective of sports fans, add a third network, a third place where they can go to watch live Premier League football starting from, I think, 2019. For shareholders, is it a good deal or... Must they go, ouch, that's a lot of money to be disappearing out. Why didn't they pay me a higher dividend? It's it's an interesting debate. Now, interestingly, shares in Sky after this deal was announced went up, partially on speculation that maybe Fox might have to return now with a higher offer for Sky now that they've secured Premier League live football rights for another three years. Shares in BT were flat. Now, whilst it's good for BT Sport that they've secured another three years of live top flight football, it was noted that they are paying more per match than they were three years ago. And although the overall bill for now is down, BT still may pay more if they choose to bid for any one of these two packages left on the table. Quite nice of BT actually made my landlines work and gave us better coverage in Mid-Devon. But we'll leave that. That's for another day. That's about it for now. And uh, thank you all very much. There's uh, all the news we've been talking about. We'll be hearing those results, uh, not just from Burberry, Glencore and Anglo-American. There's news, analysis and updates on your phones, tablets and in the paper. 
if you are a subscriber, then just go to thetimes.co.uk and you can sign up there and then you'll get our daily morning and lunchtime business bulletins. You can subscribe to us a weekly through iTunes. It'll save you a lot of hassle. My thanks to Deirdre Hipwell, Callum Jones and Catherine Griffiths. They're on Twitter, so please do follow them. And join us again next week. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.